I really think it's time that, at least on the academic side, like we spend a lot more time looking at the local. It's uh, it's not as sexy. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I got I got a few cool things in my my project that I like think are pretty sexy. You know, I got I got some murders. I got you know. Really? Oh yeah. You didn't tell me about any murders. Oh gosh, I'm so sorry. It's true. Murders are more sexy than most aspects of local politics. But there is also something exciting about really understanding how power works in your state or community. So let's lean into that this week. Historian Emiliano Aguilar will help us understand what it meant for the Latinx community in East Chicago to finally elect some of their own, and whether it really helped the community at large. Answers to that question and more after this. Welcome to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. With Republican presidential candidates making announcements left and right, it seemed like it was time to return to an episode about local politics. I mean the idea of local politics as much as a particular location. I think a lot of us tend to overlook local politics because it's easier and more exciting to follow the horse race coverage in national media. But so many important decisions happen at the local and state levels. And those are the places where we can really make a difference. So... Today we're headed to the far northwestern part of Indiana, East Chicago, where there will be only one murder toward the end of the conversation. As you'll hear, I recorded this conversation in the summer of 2022. Emiliano Aguilar is a historian of the Latinx Midwest. He just finished his PhD at Northwestern with a dissertation called Building a Latino Machine, Machine Politics, Corruption, and Integration in East Chicago, Indiana, 1945 to 2010. He is starting in the history department at Notre Dame as we speak in late August 2022. It's his first week in his office. It's exciting. It's worth mentioning, too, that Emiliano grew up in East Chicago, went to Wabash College, and got a master's at Purdue. So he's very much of Indiana. Uh, his work shines a light on the importance of Indiana and the Midwest more generally as a really significant place for Latinx history and culture. But he's not just trying to shine a light. He's also asking a more pointed question that I think touches on a lot of discussions we've been having more generally about identity and politics. If you're part of a marginalized group, what does it mean to finally get your people into political power? In the past decade and a half, we've had some major milestones in terms of racial representation in the upper echelons of American politics. Obama, of course, the first black president in 2008. Sonia Sotomayor in 2009 as the first Latina on the Supreme Court. A couple of years later, Kamala, or a couple of years ago, Kamala Harris became the first black woman vice president. How has that played out on the ground for people of color, women of color? In a lot of ways. It's played out in a million different ways. There's no single answer. But what I find exciting about Emiliano's work is that he shows us some of the complexity of what it looks like for a marginalized group to struggle for political office and political power, not necessarily the same thing, in the 20th century U.S. So, Emiliano Aguilar, welcome to Interstates. Hi. Thank you for having me, Alex. Really appreciate it. So before we get into the more official history of East Chicago, uh, sort of public history, I'd love to hear a little bit about how you got into this personally. And I wonder if maybe you could start with the story of your grandfather checking the obituaries. Yeah, that's one of my favorite stories to tell. So my, my maternal grandfather was very like, I don't, I don't know what word I like to use when talking about grandpa vote. Ironically, named vote, V-O-G-T. <laughs> he, he had this mindset that he didn't need to vote uh, because nothing would change. 
that the same people in power would constantly, you know, perpetuate the same politics that he had seen his entire life. He was a lifelong East Chicagoan. And he would check the obituaries every morning to make sure he wasn't in there because he had this whole mindset that, you know, even in East Chicago, the dead vote. And he wanted to make sure that he was still alive. He wasn't dead and that no one was using him as, you know, a nice little check mark on the ballot for the precinct. Okay, so he was determined not to vote. Sounds like very cynical and for reasons that we'll get into about politics there. But did you you grew up two blocks from City Hall, right? Yes, yeah. Um, that was his, not his childhood home, but a home that he had very early on uh, in his life as well. Before my mother and stepfather family moved to Texas five years ago, we had at one point four generations in that house, which is, I, I think, quite the feat in and of itself. So, yeah, two blocks from City Hall. I think he admitted to voting twice in his entire life, 80-odd years. Wow, impressive. And um, so in spite of at least him not voting, um, did you all talk about local politics a fair amount? Yeah, uh, mainly mainly from my mother. Uh, my mother, I think, is a little bit more optimistic to this day than my grandfather ever was when it comes to politics. So mainly those conversations would come from my mom. Uh, she would not only be involved, uh, some of my er earliest jobs growing up were actually handing out and putting the political mail pamphlets on, you know, the doorknobs, or if you have the nice window panes, sliding it in through the window panes on the door. So yeah, I distrode like political literature for mainly friends of my mom who were running for office. That was like my first gig. When did you find that you had an interest in understanding um, more deeply what was going on politically there? I was actually mayor for a day in East Chicago. And I want to emphasize this. It, I wasn't there just for a day because of like some scandal or, you know, I grabbed the money and ran. Uh, when the current mayor, Mayor Anthony Copeland, came into office, he held an essay competition. You know, if you were mayor for a day, what would you do? And I, on a whim, I think from what I remember, my high school government teacher, civics teacher, encouraged all of us to write something, to submit it in. And... I did. I was like, oh, what the heck? I'm kind of frustrated by a few things. And it was mainly, you know, lack of transparency, really high salaries for elected officials, some of which who held a couple different jobs in the city that I thought was very unfair in and of itself. And, you know, I essentially wrote an essay kind of critiquing that. I didn't expect to win. I didn't expect to have to read said essay in front of the common council. I've really thought about that experience a lot, though, lately. Uh, my paternal grandfather, Grandpa Aguilar, actually came to that council meeting, watched me, and immediately after everything was said and done, you know, sent a motion thinking I was going to run for mayor and plan my mayoral campaign, like, right then and there. He was very, you know, gun ho that this was going to happen. My grandson's <laughs> going to be a politician. <laughs> so did you, uh, were you tempted? Oh, uh, yeah, every now and then still a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. Good to know. Well, uh, try to make sure you don't say anything too uh, damaging <laughs> to your future political career. That's the goal. <laughs> okay, so we'll come back to the present, but I'd like to now go back and have you situate us a little bit just in the history of East Chicago, in particular in relation to how ethnic Mexicans and Puerto Ricans especially ended up such a big part of the population there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, East Chicago was started by a bunch of city, uh, city of Chicago, Illinois, boosters, businessmen, investors 
who were really trying to sell the idea of, hey, this frontier and really evoke this economic opportunity it would stand for, particularly as some businesses in Illinois were beginning to be labeled as like nuisance industries. So a lot of these early ones that pop up in Northwest Indiana are steel mills, the refinery, um, ham and refrigeration, which has ties to the meatpacking industry in Chicago. And these industries, as most people have seen and most historians will tell you in sh- about Chicago, require large workforces. And the ethnic Mexican community really comes up during one of the major strikes of the moment, this great steel strike of 1919, Steel industries utilize ethnic Mexican laborers as well as black laborers as sort of strike breakers. And this is when we first see with ethnic Mexicans, that is, the largest influx of them settling. Uh, Nicole Martinez Legrand at the Indiana Historical Society did this wonderful interview with uh, Frederick Marvila, who recalled like his father telling him how him and his uncles had to be sort of smuggled into the steel mill complex at Inland Steel via boat by uh, across Lake Michigan to because of just how contentious the steel strike was and to really avoid these striking steel workers. And because of that, they began settling, uh, originally living in the barracks on steel mill industries. And then when they're no longer in the barracks, they're settling right outside in the shadow of the steel mill. Uh, in East Chicago, it becomes one of the densest concentrations of ethnic Mexicans in the United States. How does then the Latinx community, what we're now calling the Latinx community, ethnic Mexican and Puerto Rican communities, how do they begin to gain political power in the middle of the 20th century? A lot of the pursuit for gaining political power is actually done by the children sort of this, of this generation, these pioneering generations. And I don't even really like pioneering generation, right? There's a long history of Latinos, Latinas of all national backgrounds in the Midwest, even before, you know, they arrive in Northwest Indiana. But the sort of these first families to arrive in East Chicago as ethnic Mexicans, when they're repatriated, their children are going through these experiences as well. And they come back and in some cases, those that come back are never left, are drafted, enlisted in the Second World War. And it really becomes now this moment of identifying themselves as not only Mexican or in their case, they use Latin Americans, but also veterans. And they form an organization, the Latin Americans Veterans Association. And a lot of the early political leaders, whether it be in municipal or union politics, really relied on their status as veterans of the Second World War and later Korea as their ties to not only citizenship, but belonging in the community. And they start off very small, low-tier positions in the union, primarily, and precinct committee positions. And within any like political machine, precinct committee is, I mean, one of the most important positions, as it is today, for really the face of the party on your block or in your immediate area. And those sort of become stepping stones for them. And the more votes they're able to bring in at the time, the more power then they they could accrue in the machine boss's eyes. Like, oh, so-and-so, you know, organized in their entire block, went for me last election. They're a good guy. I need to, you know, find a way to move them up. Maybe I'll offer them, you know, a nice city job. Or maybe, and what ends up happening is maybe we'll start offering or putting our folks in as elected positions and hope they win election and they're part of the voting governing body of the city. Yeah. 
So I think this would be a good place just to make sure that people really understand what the machine itself consists of. For those of us who aren't from the Chicago area, it's, you know, I, I, when I think of the, the machine, I think of Chicago. And obviously, just beyond Chicago, it's happening in other places, but that's kind of where we most clearly associate it. What is the machine and how does it work? The political machine is an interesting sort of like part of American political history because it looks and works so differently depending on where you're at. And the East Chicago one is pretty much no different than the daily machine, except we have to consider like scale. Obviously, East Chicago is a much smaller place than Chicago, but it is a top-down machine with a mayoral figure in charge. In East Chicago's case, the longest running one being Mayor Bob Pastrick. Uh, but it is a democratic machine in the case of East Chicago as well. And from this sort of top-down position, the mayor doles out patronage or offerings of support, you know, some sort of, I don't want to use kickback yet, because in many cases, like kickbacks connotated like very along lines of like illegality, uh, patronage being sort of like the spoils of the position. I won this election. I'm going to put my friends and supporters in positions, uh, either positions that are going to help me run my administration or, you know, maybe this person went out and got me two dozen votes and they want to just be a fireman. Okay, I'm going to let them be a fireman. And in some cases, as it comes out in the 70s, you know, these in, these included, you still have to pay your councilman. And some of that pay is going to go into, you know, the mayoral re-election fund or, you know, in a very not so friendly case, like ghost payrolling. Like I'm going to put my friends on the payroll and they're never actually going to do any work. And I'm going to take a little bit of those paychecks, which are real, even though the work them, itself is pretty imaginary or, you know maybe not even happening at all. I feel like there's this tension in working within the machine versus trying to do something outside the machine, right? Absolutely. And one of the places that it seems like that was playing out, at least starting in the 1960s, is the Concerned Latins organization, which I think, if I'm understanding your work correctly, part of what prompted this group to come together had to do with this issue of ghost payrolling. And their concern, and more generally their concern about transparency and people actually doing good government and democratic work rather than just patronage. Yeah, absolutely. The Concerned Lands Organization, when they come on the scene in the 1970s, their first two sort of petitions they deliver to the council are the first one, we need a transparent government so practices like ghost payrolling are not possible or not able to be enacted. And the second one being an demand for an affirmative action hiring ordinance in the city. Uh, in 1970, East Chicago, East Chicago becomes evenly split. A third black, a third white, ethnic European, a third what they were labeling Latin. However, despite this even split, the Concerned Lands Organization noticed that, well, we barely have a dozen firemen and police officers. The number a little bit larger than I think it's still under 20 between those two departments. And they would list out regularly like, oh, and, you know, we have this many teachers, this main department heads, but we're a third of the city and we're, you know, this growing contingent uh, demographic within the city. Why don't we have our fair share? And Concerned Lands Organization really labeled this two ways that one, there needs to be some sort of affirmative action hiring ordinance. It's only fair because there's so much of the city. And the second one has like this failure of the 
political machine almost. Like they would call some of these figures coconuts, you know, brown on the outside, white on the inside. Despite those people and their behavior and their loyalty to the machine, it really hasn't led to significant gains across the entire community. And while they target that initially as just employment, they also looked at things like housing and education and they re- and things as small as like, oh, well, we live on this all Puerto Rican block and our streetlights don't work or we don't get garbage picked up regularly or our landlord doesn't care about our property. We have roofs caving in, like really starting to target like these everyday plain, in plain sight instances of what they were labeling like discrimination and unfairness as being what they saw equal members of the city. Let's actually back up just a little bit. Um, So we were talking about the machine. And at what point did ethnic Mexicans and Puerto Ricans in East Chicago start to actually gain political power? You know, maybe there wasn't someone in the mayoral office, but actually maybe having some representation within the machine. So the first elected official is uh, Joseph Marvila, who wins school board in the late 1950s. And interestingly enough, he wins the school board as then political boss, Walter, uh, I'm sorry if I mispronounce this, uh, Jerosi, Jeris, uh, J-E-O-R-S-E. He picks Marvila. He has Marvila on his ticket. If I'm remembering correctly, it's the first time an ethnic Mexican is on a party boss's ticket for an election. And Marvila wins hands down. He gets the most votes in the school board election. However, once in position, he refuses to really play by what his political boss, his patrons rules. And the mayor goes through all the way to downtown Indianapolis to get a law change. So that instead of an elected school board, cities of a certain size could have their school boards appointed by the mayor. And it's uh, the Anderson, Indiana, like school board bill or something like that in 1958, 59. So he attaches himself and his representatives downstate to this cause, once it's passed, he removes Marvila and, you know, sort of any of these reformers who are demanding for good government and transparency because uh, Marvila just didn't want, uh, allegedly Marvila just didn't want to appoint and provide contracts to the mayor's buddies in the city. Uh, at least that's sort of, you know, the, the take on it. And because of that, he's removed from office. And then there's not an elect, another elected official until 63 when Jesse Gomez Sr. becomes the first elected councilman in the city. Okay, so 63. So they're starting to gain some power. Yeah, yeah. And part of that became that the challenger that year in the Democratic primary promised, you know, a Latin, what he called Latin, uh, department head. He had Jesse Gomez on his ticket at that time. If I'm remembering correctly, Gomez was in charge of the Chicago License Bureau, and he switches his support from... Mayor Jarris to Nicosia and gets a pink slip for his position in the mm-hmm. Chicago uh, uh, License Bureau uh, after the primary because Nicosia won the primary and Gomez had supported him. So Gomez comes on and we start to see department heads as well gain political or Latinos gain department head positions in the city uh, after that election, albeit I think only one or two uh, until 1971. Okay. And would you say that it's with the formation of the Concerned Latins organization that this tension between people who are in office and like actual neighborhoods um, and community members starts to really come up more significantly? Yeah, uh, it starts 
more like 1968 with a different organization, uh, the Youth Advisory Board, who were really frustrated that among the municipal improvements, the ethnic Mexican Puerto Rican neighborhood wasn't going to get a recreation center. So because the community was not going to get a recreation center. So in 1968, one of these protests was that the Youth Advisory Board led a group of school children down to City Hall, sort of demanding a recreation center. Like, we're children in the city too, why, do not, why don't we have one? So that's sort of one of the first big, I would label like parts of the civil rights movement in the city. And the second one being alleged comments made by a Washington high school principal calling Mexicans lazy and ignorant. And from those comments that labeled Mexicans lazy and ignorant, a high school walkout was staged in 1970 in the fall. And this sort of becomes a kickoff point for the Concerned Lands organization being formed. And it's a coalition really led by members of the Youth Advisory Board, led by groups or including groups such as the Brown Berets, steel workers, local community activists, members from Our Lady of Guadalupe, which is one of the ethnic Mexican parishes in the community, all really come together. It's about almost three dozen organizations. I think the final count was 34 or 35 that come together along the lines of employment, education, and housing to really argue that, hey, we are getting the short end of the stick here and we deserve better. Yeah. And tell me about some of the tactics that they used to uh, try to get the politicians to listen to them. And the results of that with maybe some barriers that were set up to that. Oh, gosh. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Concerned Lands Organization was affiliated with the Industrial Areas Foundation or Saul Linsky Institute. So, the whole so this point is a foundational, action, foundational community organizing center in Chicago um, that Saul Linsky founded. And is a, yeah, maybe I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. And part of every action in their training was to get a reaction. So they did some minor things like for the affirmative action hiring ordinance, they targeted businesses. In one case, they went to a bank and requested their paychecks in pennies or counting, have to have the tellers count out their pennies to hold up lines and get people angry and explain, well, this is why we're doing it. Or going into businesses and like sort of demanding they put these posters in the wall. They would attend meetings. If they wouldn't be called on, they would just stand up and start talking. And then when one would get escorted out, another would stand up and talk. And in some cases, members would get as close as they, they would leave the podium and walk up to the council desk. And this sort of leads the council in the 70s. They put up a fence or like a barrier between them, the podium, and then the audience behind the podium as a way to sort of deter, you know, angry members or as the newspapers always labeled them, like angry Latins coming up to the council members during meetings. Yeah, these tactics were just, you know, in your face, very public displays of dissatisfaction. Some members admit that one of the downfalls for the, I don't know if if you would like to, you know, talk a little bit about why it doesn't happen. Oh, absolutely. Um, that was going to be my one of my next questions. <laughs> there, there's sort of three takes on it. Uh, first one, sort of this cult of personality that just the leaders of it had these complexes or that they were very controlling of the organization and didn't really cultivate leadership or dissent or healthy dissent, that is, like disagreement among tactics and organizations and directions. The second one, it's 
conflict with Industrial Areas Foundation itself. That some members didn't understand why they would attend these trainings and be trained by the organization, but were not able to lead or handle the organization themselves. They still had you know, these sort of outside observers from the Industrial Areas Foundation trying to dictate direction for the organization, one such direction being claiming that there's no power in an all-Latin organization and needed to become multiracial. And they hold a vote, and the organization really splinters after that vote that, you know, overwhelmingly, no, we don't want to be a multiracial organization. We want to stay an all-Latino, all-Latin, sorry, organization. And the third one being that the political machine really co-ops some of these members. And some of these members do join the administration later on and become very important figures within the mayoral administration of East Chicago. It's time for a short break. You're listening to an interview with historian Emiliano Aguilar about the Latinx community's struggle in East Chicago to get political representation and how, once they did, the results were more complicated than they might have hoped. When we come back, Emiliano tells us about how some locals felt like once the city started bulldozing their neighborhood, the least it could do would be to give them the jobs running the bulldozers. This is Interstates. Stick around. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. We're talking this week with Emiliano Aguilar. He's a historian of the Latinx experience in the Midwest with a focus on the political machine in his hometown of East Chicago. He was telling me about controversy around urban renewal projects there, and I asked him to remind us what urban renewal meant at the time. Yeah, so in this context, it meant the removal of properties for transportation improvements like Klein Avenue Bridge. In some cases, it meant removing housing for the establishment of a new elementary school, which CLO also protested for its exorbitant costs. They believed that the elementary school was ridiculously overpriced and that there were contracts being given out to friends of the political administration and the city residents should not have to foot said bill. Some activists even protested the fact that, well, if this is going to happen, the least they could do is hire like Latin construction workers to work these jobs too. I mean, they could hire us if they're going to, which I think is probably the first time I've ever seen some of that, that kind of like argument for things like urban renewal. Like, well, if you're going to kick us out of our home, at least give us a job to work uh, so that we could buy a new place. Yeah. The machine is is running. We're going to try to get what we can out of it. Yeah. And this is one of the interventions I want to make is that a lot of these struggles, particularly in the civil rights movement, overlap and they overlap along issues of good government and transparency in lines of like, is this government responsive to my needs and my wants as a resident? And then is it actually just responsible, good government? Is it transparent? Which are not necessarily the same thing. No. Yeah. Not at all. Ideally, a good government doesn't have to be transparent, but I, I get that myself included. Uh, a little transparency would go a long way in showing me you're a good government. <laughs> Ideally, it wouldn't have to be transparent, but I guess I was more thinking about the fact that, like, is this government giving me what I need versus is it a good government overall? If it's. If I'm on the inside, yeah, right. And it'll, look, it'll look a lot better than being on the outside. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Absolutely. How does the machine continue to unfold then? The CLO dissolves, what, in 1970? Is that right? A little later on, about 1976, 1977. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah, I had my, my years off. Okay, so it dissolves in the in 1977. 
Was that the kind of the main community organization that was maybe trying to hold government feet to the fire? Yeah, there's successors to it, including members from Silo that go on to start other organizations like Hispanics for Justice in the 80s. And then decades later, new activists, a younger generation with Citizens in Action, which is a multiracial coalition or was a multiracial coalition in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, so I, I think at least how I like to present it in my work is that they're they're one along this much long, longer line of citizens that are really trying to demand good government and transparency, push back against the political machine throughout the city's history. So it seems like you went into this research because you wanted to understand something about democracy. I've heard you talk occasionally about small-D democracy in particular, you know, this, part, this idea of participation and being able to, like, have a say about what, what's happening in your community. What, what do you feel like you've figured out? I figured out, I think, what many of us know, and that's that politics is just so complex and people get involved or don't get involved for so many reasons. I do think that, and I would love to explore this further, down the line of my own research, that a history of corruption and a history of something where citizens for election after election don't see change. People like my grandfather, my maternal grandfather. This doesn't persuade them like, oh, well, Democrats are all corrupt. I'm going to vote Republican. It loses that voter to both parties to the couch. And they choose just not to participate. And that's becoming a growing trend of, you know, non-voters, people who could vote but choose not to in this country. And I, I think that's just such a fascinating phenomenon to explore. Like, why do why are people not involved? And I think that these small local actions and these small local everyday experiences become so important for that. Because regardless of who's in the White House, it's, you know, who's your councilman? Who's your council representative? Who's your mayor? Who, who is involved in your local municipal government. I mean, those are the people you have more interactions with than someone in D.C. I guess unless you're, you're in D.C., but uh, yeah, <laughs> at least here in Indiana. Then it's yeah. kind of local for you. The local matters, <laughs> yeah, very much so. And I really think it's time that, at least on the academic side, like we spend a lot more time looking at the local. And by that, I don't mean like these bustling, like, large urban metros like Chicago, New York, but really getting back to the everyday. It's not as sexy. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I got, I got a few cool things in my, my project that I like to think are pretty sexy. You know, I got, I got some murders. I got, you know. Some, really? You oh, didn't yeah. tell me about any murders. Oh, one of the, oh gosh, I'm so sorry. Uh, one of the former Segovia-supported candidates Henry Lopez, he's also the second ever Mexican president of the United Steelworkers Local 1010. He ends up dead in the river with a basketball-sized rock on the gas pedal and a gunshot wound to the back of the head. He goes missing December 1979. They find him January 1980. He had just gotten in trouble for trying to fix a steelworkers election in 76, supposedly under his watch as the department head for Parks Department in East Chicago. Tens of thousands of dollars had gone missing. And 
there was a rumor that he was, you know, going to talk to the feds even like in like sort of the folktale of the region mythos, like he was going to turn witness to the feds against the machine. So the machine had him killed. Like there's a lot of, you know, mystery around him. There's actually a, a cold case episode about Babe Lopez and another one, Jay Given, who shot in front of a couple hundred people at a political fundraiser and no one saw anything. Right. So, the, yeah, there's these, I think, really eerily folky, mysterious cases uh, when it comes to corruption at that time, when it comes to politics, even at that time. And Lopez and Given are just or two of, two of the main ones. Would you say that it's true in East Chicago, what I think has been true from across much of the country, that people are have shifted their attention more toward national politics um, in the past few decades? Yeah, I, I would think there's yeah been a lot more attention, even in small local papers, right, towards presidential offices, congressional reps, Senate races, than necessarily what's going on in our own backyard. And what do you think, I feel like you've sort of answered this, but I'm, maybe I'm just asked so Maybe I'm asking it again, but I'm going to ask it again anyway. What do you think it uh, it takes to get people to care more about about local politics? Yeah, I think an understanding of local politics and how it works is super important. I mean, even knowing who do you call when your garbage doesn't get picked up. Like, yeah, you call City Hall, but, you know, public works, maybe. Understanding who department heads are. Understanding who your precinct person are is, where to even vote. And then even like small, like everyday bureaucratic things like, well, what's city ordinance? And really understanding like the structures of government. And I think it really takes people understanding what they don't like at the local level and how to really confront that to get involved uh, at the local level. And to stay like consistently involved. I mean, I'm sure we've all seen or heard of those sort of city meetings, whether they're at the city council or school board, that, you know, there's a great big surge and then no one's there in a couple of weeks, right? Like it, it's like a roller coaster of involvement and moving away from that, I think is also really important. Not to say like those moments shouldn't happen. Like it's still very important if something frustrates a community to show up in mass. But also if you have time, like reading these minutes and seeing what's getting passed, because it might affect you. Right. The way it might affect you and recognizing that. Yeah. I still got to say, it's not as it's not as fun to read the minutes as it is to go like read a salacious article about, you know, Liz Cheney or the Republicans or whatever. No, sadly, not all city council meetings are like Parks and Rec episodes where, yeah, there's <laughs> outrageous folks. There are, not just, there are outrageous folks at some of these meetings, but, yeah. you know, not every meeting is going to be like that, sadly. Uh, sad, Parks and Rec definitely glorified the, the local city meetings. <laughs> So what do you hope people take away from this particular project that you've been working on that you'll, your dissertation, you'll be turning it into a book? All said and done, I really hope the book lets people critically explore what, what this means, like the stakes of elections and the stakes of representation and how it shouldn't end there. Political pursuit should not end once that person you support is in office. Like it remains, I think, a small d democratic duty to be critical of these people, to not blindly follow someone that you support, uh, to remain like ever vigilant. Like that's how democracy, I think, works, is to remain vigilant on these elected officials, regardless of who they are, regardless if you like them or not. 
you did a, a public conversation with uh, Nicole Martinez-Legrand. And toward the end of that, you said that you had ended on a fairly pessimistic note. <laughs> I wonder if you could describe that note that you felt like you were ending on there. And I wonder, too, if it's changed since then. Yeah. I haven't got back to like revising and working through the conclusion yet. So at the moment, it's still there. I don't know if when I get there, what mindset I'll be in. But yeah, really understanding how part of it was sort of my frustration with how East Chicago's current mayor has handled the East Chicago Fire Department after they chose not to support him in a Democratic primary a few years back. And sort of like these retaliation efforts he makes against them post-Democratic primary. And to me, it's just, you know, it reeks of hardball politics, hardball politics that he advocated against when he was a community activist. And I don't know, it's almost like the Batman rule, the Dark Knight rule. Like if, you know, what is, how does it go? Like uh, you either live long enough to see yourself be the hero or, no, you, oh gosh, I'm sorry, Christopher Nolan out there. Die the hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain or something like that. That sounds right. Again, sorry, Christopher Nolan from butchering, butchering your line. Um, but yeah, and I don't want to say there's like this cyclical, cyclical nature of it, but I'm hoping there isn't, right? Like I'm hoping that these charismatic community leaders can come along that we can support, that we can still criticize, but that we can support and sort of trust because we stay vigilant, because we stay on them and stay involved, that they don't become the villain in our eyes. Yeah. I mean, I think that there is something optimistic about that too, which is that it's possible potentially to keep them from becoming the villain, but it requires all of us to be involved and be vigilant and be uh, active in our communities and paying attention to all this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, power in and of itself is just like, is corruptible. I mean, especially when it comes at the hands of like people not involved in meetings, like that is how you get absolute power if no one paying attention. So it requires paying attention. Yeah. Right. Well, this is great. I feel like I personally have, in the, just in the past, even just few years, thought a lot harder about the importance of local politics and paying attention to it and being involved in it, um, local and state level. So more power to you and to also helping, you know, your vision, helping other people see the importance of being involved. Thank you. I appreciate that. Do you feel like there are any major things that we missed that you want to make sure to cover? I probably would plug in that, you know, as an ever-growing demographic, that Latina, Latinos in Indiana are going to become consistently important uh, for all people involved, for, you know, the state, but not only state, but political parties. And that's it's on both political parties to actually reach out to this demographic or, you know, to reach out to citizens in general, residents in general. Since I've been legally able to vote, since I've been voting age, I've only ever been contacted, you know, twice in campaigns. That's outside local positions. I mean, they, they leave mailers all the time. But I'm talking like for state and national level politicians, I get like, I've had like two. I'm probably the only person in the state that's complaining, like, please send me more political mail. I, I want to be contacted. Whether, you know, you're Democrat, Republican, third party, like, I, I, I want to hear from you. Like, maybe it's the political nerd in me. I want to see these things. But yeah, I have all of two that I was sent directly. Others are, you know, ones I scavenged. I get like left on the sidewalks and stuff. I'm like, oh, this is so cool. Let me check this out. Texts? Do you get texts from political parties? I've gotten more of those uh, this campaign season. Uh, 
So those, yes. I, but you're talking, I also, so you're talking about, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think texts are lazy. I think like the text and the robocall is just like lazy politicking. Knock on doors, canvas, distribute flyers. Like that, the face-to-face is what I'm all about. Maybe that's a little too old school, but I don't know. I will always answer the door. <laughs> and I also, I'm also like, come knock on my door. I want to hear about what you're doing. Yeah, so, so now they, everyone knows they can send their political materials and knock on our doors at least. Yeah, yeah. All right, Emiliano. Well, I should let you go on to get to your next things, but thank you so much for taking this time. It's really fun. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Alex. That was Emiliano Aguilar. He recently joined the history department at the University of Notre Dame. It's time for a break. When we come back, a reflection on music that's so bad, it might be really good. Stay with us. Interstate's Alex Chambers. As you might know, we've been talking about guilty pleasures lately. I asked John Bailey, station operations director and dedicated music fan, to tell me about his. Who was it, Duke Ellington, who said, there are only two kinds of music, good and bad? I, I, I guess so. But some things are in a certain subset of bad. They're so profoundly, mind-bendingly bad that there's a goodness to them. I think uh, uh, bad art is art that is in some way boring to you. It's crafted without any evident intention. It seems to have nothing to teach you. But my guilty pleasure that I want to talk about today has shown me a lot. A a lot about uh, how music is made, about the nature of inspiration, about the pitfalls of, of, uh, of poor parenting. The shags were never supposed to be. They came about because of an imperious New Hampshire father named Austin Wiggin Jr. He was uh, a poor, rough-hewn, New England mill hand. His mother had read his palm when he was a pretty young man, before he went off into the world, off on his own. And she made three predictions. And the first prediction was that he would marry a strawberry blonde young woman. The second prediction was that she would die and he would remarry and have two sons. And the third prediction was that the daughters from the first marriage would become popular musicians. And the first two things by the time he was in his 30s came to pass. So he set out trying to make the third thing happen. And this was not a guy who apparently liked music. He didn't listen to it, really. It was about 1965, as the daughters were kind of reaching their preteen and teen years, the three eldest daughters. A fourth ended up joining the fold later as a bass player. But he put those instruments in their hands, cheap guitars, cheap drum set, gave the band a name, named them after the shag haircuts that were popular at the time, 
mid-60s, 65 or so, made them practice, made them engage in calisthenics so they could deal with the, the, um, uh, the challenges to one's stamina that yeah. playing a concert posed, not to mention the stamina of actually listening to the music that was <laughs> being made. They finally got a regular series of gigs in the town hall in Fremont, New Hampshire, Friday nights, starting in about 1968. People would show up expressly to laugh at their attempts to make music. And what was wrong with that music? What was wrong with that music? Well, you'll hear it was two guitars and a drummer who seemed to be in, I'm not gonna say entirely in separate orbits. It was really as if the drummer was occupying her own planet. Just trying different beats in the course of the same song, roughly, apparently, just at will, willy-nilly. And the guitarists were playing in a kind of robotic unison. The rhythm guitarist was playing the changes, as one would. The lead guitarist was playing the melody line that she was also singing. And that the other guitarist was singing as well, in a rather kind of robo-New England accent. And the lyrics themselves, which were written by the teenage girls about their own experiences, about wishing they had straight hair, about who, who parents are, about simple teenage longing, about wishing to reconnect with the neighbor's cat who has gone missing, a cat named Foot Foot, my pal Foot Foot. Simple things that, that teenagers might write and sing about. But in a, you could say, a, an unduly focused way, almost robotic. My pal's name is Footfoot. Foot. He always likes to roam. My pal's name is Footfoot. Foot. I never find him home. I go to his house, knock at his door. People come out and say, Footfoot, Foot, don't live here no more. We know now that this was all happening under duress that Austin Wiggin Jr. very much wanted his girls to be pop stars, forced them to practice for hours on end. Sometimes they would, when their dad wasn't there, would chuck it all. They'd go to the lake and, and then rearrange their instruments in the practice room to make it look as if they'd touched them and used them. <laughs> My feelings about the Shags evolved as I, A, came to learn more about the group, the formation and the nature of the group, and what happened to the young women as they came of age and the Shags disbanded after their father died suddenly of a massive heart attack in his late 40s. And so the driver of their music was gone and they went their separate ways until there was a rediscovery decades later. And B, my own sort of evolution as, as an empath in life. I didn't want to acquire art and music 
expressly to laugh at it. I wanted to discover the humanity within. What happened to the, to the sisters? Well, the father, Austin Wiggin Jr., died in 1975. Massive heart attack. The mother sold the house to the Fremont Fire Department, which proceeded to burn it down in a training exercise. The girls went off on their own. Most of them took on blue-collar jobs. One of them, the one whose voice you primarily hear on the songs, fell into a very deep depression, ended up on disability because of it. One of the sisters took her own life. But the music has been rediscovered and appreciated in the last 20 years or so, kind of against their will. The surviving shags got better over time. Uh They became kind of mediocre. And they noticed their crowds dwindling at the Fremont Town Hall, where their Friday night residency continued into the mid-70s, because they just weren't that bad anymore. There was nothing to laugh at. Nothing to see. They got pretty competent and thus a little bit boring. They regressed to the mean. And that's not all that interesting. It's not. There's a purity to the early work that I love. And that's it for today's show. You've been listening to Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. If you have a story for us, or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at wfiu.org slash interstates. Speaking of found sound, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up. But first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Violet Barron, Aabon Binder, Mark Chilla, Avi Forrest, Luann Johnson, Sam Schemenauer, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is music lover John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Emiliano Aguilar. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music. All right, time to head to a field and listen. was a field recording at Griffey Lake, fall of 2022. Wind in the leaves, a bird, let me know what kind, a plane overhead, and more. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks for listening.